Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. So welcome everybody. It's nice to see you coming in. Um, we've got a busy one today and we've got um, two presentations, um, one public health um, on immunisations and one uh, from Adam, Adam Tuckett on um, the extended increased access to medical records for TPP practices. So we're going to kick off at one o'clock with um, public health. So we've got Claire Lohman, um, who is from um, Southwest Public Health, and we've got um, Matthew Pickerel, who's from Southeast. Um, we we're hoping that we were going to have um, Lisa Howe and Tina Hayes, but I, I can't see them at the moment. So, um, Matthew and Claire, if I share my screen, are you happy to start the presentation? Just the two of you, is that okay? Or did you want to? Yep, Claire's nodding comfortably. Claire, I think if you crack on, because we're yeah, struggling, okay, obviously, with yeah, that's fine. Um, so uh, we wanted to provide you with um, the key contacts for um, for uh, all of the areas that your um, LMC cover. So um, we've got um, some contacts there for the uh, NHS England Thames Valley Hampshire and Isle of Wight Public Health Commissioning team. Um, uh, there are two um, emails there, one which is for immunisation advice and inquiries and then one um, for the contracting side. And that works the same for um, the Southwest uh, Public Health Commission team that, that I'm in, which covers um, Bath, Swindon, Wiltshire and Dorset. Um, so we've got a general inquiries um, email there. We've got a contracting email, but we also have um, what we call us our SWICARS, uh, immunisation advice um, email, which is our service that we've run to answer queries on uh, immunizations uh, including COVID we've uh, absorbed our COVID service into that now um, and then there are a number of child health immunized um, information services that cover your um, LMC area um, and we've provided contact details and telephone numbers there for um, Baines and Swindon together um, Wiltshire and then Dorset um, and then the final um, contact details is for uh, Health Isle of Wight, um, which is covered by the Southern Health Foundation Trust. And again, you've got an email and a uh, phone number contact there for the um, CHIS services. So if you move on to the next slide, please. Um, so this was the slide that I was due to cover. I'm hoping Matthew will come back in for the remaining ones because I must admit I haven't, uh, haven't seen those. Um, but we wanted to just um, outline some work that we've done um, with uh, targeting some GP practices and um, over the summer we contacted um, 78 of our practices including some um, Dorset, Swindon, Wiltshire uh, practices uh, and we wanted to talk to them about how um, not only their data and their uptake but actually what were their kind of um, techniques and um, ways of uh, increasing immunisation uptake. So we've gathered these from a variety of um, people uh, in terms of what they're telling us what worked um, in terms of getting people in for immunisation. So I'm just going to run through um, these. Um, and some of these you already know, people will be doing, but um, I think it's always worth reminding us of the sort of variety of ways of um, engaging people and increasing immunisation uptake. So really important to offer flexible clinic times. Um, that was the feedback that came from um, particularly parents and carers of um, young children who were kind of juggling lots of diaries and, and demands um, and, and, and many um, GP practices now have what they call uh, care navigators and or social prescribers and actually they can be a really useful part of the workforce to raise people's awareness of their eligibility for immunisation but also kind of um, prompt them 
um, to book appointments, to turn up for appointments um, uh, and, and that type of thing. because so they kind of work alongside people to really advocate for um, their own health. Um, some of the evidence shows that phoning the pa pa parents directly um, increases the uptake um, and opportunity to get it in the diary, get an appointment booked. But also if um, a parent is presenting um, for another reason, so um, when a, a child is um, perhaps unwell, you may not be able to give the, the vaccination at that point. The child may not be well enough, but actually get uh, take that opportunity to book a future appointment. Um, Utilising the um, patient participation groups, um, and this is not only to um, promote and increase uptake of vaccination, but also to get feedback from um, patients. Um, you know, what's the experience like? What are the barriers for them in um, taking up vaccination? Um, make sure that your um, recall um, at your recall is um, recall system is sort of robust and regular, but also that the coding is correct. Sometimes um, actually immunisation uptake can look poor because actually um, the, the wrong codes have been used. Make sure that um, we've provided you with a link for a bit more detail around the next one, but make sure that your staff um, and that's anyone that can uh, have patient contact um, are kind of confident and have some good up to non date knowledge about vaccines um, uh, and then there are a variety of ways that you can provide up-to-date information so that could be in your newsletters to your website um, visually within the surgery as prompts and in your consultation rooms but also think about a little bit wider in your community so is there anywhere that you can display information and, and prompt posters in um, your nurseries local child groups baby clinics schools, local pharmacies, and um, even coffee shops. Uh, local, sometimes your local coffee shop want to kind of promote local health services and opportunities. Um, if you've got local papers and community magazines, ask them for kind of um, a, a section in there to kind of, again, put in a prompt message about opportunities for vaccination. Uh, and also, if you've, you're building relationships with your local schools, ask if they'll put a flyer in the children's reading bags, because those are the, the things that um, usually get emptied out and sifted through um, and um, and can be a good, again, uh, sort of prompt to parents. Um, increasingly, um, uh, uh, practices are using social media. So whether that's through their own practice Facebook page or whether they're linking to local parents groups, um, but also there's been some quite good um, uh, uh, locality work um, using uh, Instagram streams to prompt people about um, vaccination eligibility and how to um, how to increase uh, how to take up that opportunity for yourself. Um, and that started with um, work around COVID, but has increasingly been used um, for flu and for other child immunisations. Um, make sure that you. Uh, amplify the positive and uh, accurate information about vaccines because that actually that helps people um, uh, resist and develop resilience around false uh, from false information that is circulating and present vaccination as the social norm um, so it's just what we do it's kind of part of how we look after our health um, same as something like cleaning your teeth or wearing a seatbelt so just kind of it becoming part of a um, self-care um, opportunity um, and we have also given you a, another um, link at the bottom there I'm sorry it's very small but actually that is um, some really interesting information about uh, effective ways to improve vaccine rates um, from the vaccine alliance 
Um, but what they wanted to do is to cost out um, uh, some examples of, um, of children attending for their infant immunizations um, and um, and show that the sort of the cost benefit of, of them attending on time. Okay, so I think that's what we can do. You can share these slides and people can have a look at those. Um, shall I just... Um, if you They're just all similar things, them. aren't they? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, and this was just explaining the importance of vaccination and the financial importance also. Um, so I assume we'll obviously share this with people. Um, and yeah, if they and want to come back to you, they've got your contact details, haven't they, from the front slide? Yeah, and I think the key message around this one is the, um, the element of timely vaccination. Um, yep. So, um, And that's not only for, um, uh, you know, the... The capacity and the delivery in, in GP surgeries but of course it's for the benefit of the child as well so you're not leaving them vulnerable to um, uh, infection at a, a key time when they should be having those key immunizations and also what's useful on this slide is to um, to reiterate the um, the targets there of 90 to 95 percent and 87 to 95 percent um, uh, um, receiving those vaccinations but it also links it back to your quaff point so it's kind of links it's the the business side if you were um, yes. of, of the immunization program yeah. no that's in, that's always important to look at that one too um, I think we move on to um, so I think guess if people are missing them what might what might practice be able to do yeah so um, apply the top tips that I've run through um, beforehand um, we do sometimes have um, issues around um, moves in, so making sure that their details are updated on their immunisation history um, so that you're um, picking up those children and, and prompting their parents and carers to um, book in at the right time. And that's where your work um, with closely with the CHIS um, providers uh, is important because they will notify you of those. Um, children that have, have um, missed immunisations, and that's particularly relevant um, during the COVID um, period, um, you can seek support from your child health um, information systems there. Uh, also from the, the two screening and immunisation teams, both um, uh, myself and Matthew are the two coordinators. Uh, and then there's a really useful resource that you can run through, which is about uh, if you've got someone with uncertain or incomplete immunisation status, um, so we use this uh, algorithm all the time, but we also share it with other people because it kind of um, takes you through the pathway according to the individual's uh, immunisation. Um, make sure, of course, make sure you correctly record immunisations given and then inform CHIS of those so that their record stays up to date. And one of the things, Claire, you mentioned is using social media, and I'm sure practices are doing their very best to communicate with patients as much as they possibly can. But obviously, mm. it's a tough time at the moment to do anything um, proactively because it's just they're just so busy. Um, do you have access to um, or is there information on there, first of all, that they can pick up and share on social media so they don't have to rewrite the words and rewrite anything themselves? Have you got videos and animations that they can just literally lift and put on their websites um, or use in posters? You mentioned posters in coffee shops and things. Yeah, certainly there's um, a lot of content, um, both when we were in Public Health England, but now in NHS England, um, that is generated at a, a national, um, but also a regional um, level that can then be um, used. Uh, and then sometimes... Um, what happens is localities develop even more specific um, content, but it can kind of, you can, there's lots of information that can be pulled from national and regional campaigns. Um, 
So you don't necessarily have to always start from from scratch when thinking about I mean, your communications. Yeah, that's really helpful because, as I say, when you're really pushed in the day job anyway if you've got someone yeah. that's done it and then it's a consistent message and then there it's an accurate message so if the more you can help with that so that's um and, and that and that will be on the, the did you give us a page for that where all the information is for the comms i can't remember if you gave us a link for that one or not claire um it depends on the immunizations but then i mean there okay. are of, um, resources that relate to the childhood immunizations but of course then you've got things like your shingles and your flu and uh, and things actually being developed um, okay all the time we do also try and put those into the um gp bulletin um which um members would receive so okay. um, and that comes out weekly so we do try and highlight any um, new resources there as well okay. and the other thing i was thinking of is um i know some of some of our practices have had suddenly had a number of afghan refugees come into their into their practice area do you offer um particular help for practices who might be struggling with people that um, english is, is not their first language um or other other cultural issues that might be particularly challenging for them to get some sort of good good uptake do you give some specific advice about things in different languages and also some how to how to have conversations about difficult different cultural expectations yeah certainly um, as a, um, a team we have um health inequalities is one of our um, key you know uh, work stream that, that runs through everything and we t- we talked this morning about um where translations are available or translation uh, translation ways of translating information um so yeah that's certainly something that um that people can come to our teams for advice around as well so i'm sure that would be really helpful um should we move on to the next slide Yes, I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this was just, I think Tina was um, keen um, when you had a planning meetings just to get some help from the practices yeah. to say, actually, what what can public health do to help the practices improve the uptake for immunizations? Um, I would imagine that most practices out there are very keen to get the uptake as high as they can um, for the safety and, and the welfare of, of all their young people um, and, the, and the greater population. But is there anything particular I think you were asking for? And I think there was talk about setting up a mentimeter um i think tina was going to do that i suspect that isn't probably working now if, if the internet isn't working very well for her but if you can just perhaps put in the q a bar anybody if they've got anything particular um that you would like help help with from public health england you'd be, i know that you'd be more than happy to take back some information wouldn't you yeah absolutely so um what support do you need from us as your screening and immunization team to achieve uptake um and that can be um all, all the vaccines i mean today focused a little bit more on childhood but um yeah interested to hear from you so perhaps if that is put into the chat chat and then yeah and yeah i mean anybody team, we can have a look at um, those i'm a bit strict actually claire i do say i like it in the q a box rather than the show oh, yeah sorry but i'm not used to zoom i always like no that's yes, my fault i didn't give any yeah, ground Q&A rules box. that's completely my fault claire. <laughs> but so um so some of the chats already coming in um that's something from Andrew. Um, patients registering children, babies from multiple different countries. Can anything be provided to practices to help practices align vaccines in other countries to be matched against the UK equivalent? Oh, that's quite interesting. Shall I say that again? I've rattled through that. Yeah, no, that's all right. I think I, I um, understand. Um, there are um, there is a World Health Organization um, resource that um, allows us to, uh, or we can share to look at what is the usual schedule for a country 
uh, usually when we're answering queries around that, um, we we always vaccinate uh, according to what we will be given in this country. So we are trying to catch them off on their schedule, but actually it is useful to see um, what the equivalents are when you're kind of faced with a medical record. You're like, well, is that the same as what we would give here or not? Yes. Yes, I think that would be really helpful. Thank you, Claire. Another one one comment has come in. Yes, Ed, the first slide did have contact details. We'll share the slides so you'll see those. But one thing we struggle with is only takes a couple of children not attending to miss the 95% target. 95% sounds very high. Um, I do have practices that I work alongside who um, do miss their target because of literally full of families who they have tried everything to to you know to engage them to book them um and um but we've we've talked to them about where um utilizing other healthcare professionals like the health visitor to um try and um engage them and get them in um so yeah i know it it can just be a couple people booked in or 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 not it is difficult, isn't it? I think we're losing connection a little bit with you there, Claire. Welcome, Tina. It's nice to see you. Um, I don't know if you want to come off um, mute. We're, we've just gone through. We're just asking questions. So um, practice managers are putting some things in the, in the Q&A box and in the chat to say, actually, 95% target is really high. What can we do? And Claire was just saying using the wider team, sort of health visitors, is a good idea. We're talking about um, difficulty when you've got um, people coming from different countries and just maxing that sort of thing up. Um so there's a question coming in now. We've got far too many declining and cannot convince them to come in. Tina. Okay, I'll try that. Um, it's, a, it's a really interesting time. Um, we're moving very much from looking very practice focused and we've moved into PCNs. We're now looking out across a wider system to the ICSs. So there's going to be a lot more support and outreach that's going to be needed to be done across the community um, and engaging other services to try and help support uh, practices to fulfill their functions because I'm, I'm really really sort of cognizant that this is actually a lot of money tied up with immunizations now for achieving a quaff um, uh, points alone it's just under eleven thousand um, pounds if you make those targets um, before uh, any adjustments are being made let alone for the individual child with the item of service fee the administration fee so potentially this is a lot of money that could be lost or um, retained um, by practices going forward. So we need to do more, which is why we were asking the question, what is it, you know, the actual practices think um, could support them in getting children in? And we know in some communities, it's a lot worse than others um, because of the makeup of the community. Um, you know, they're declining, not engaging. Um, I know practices are obviously having a lot of um, children who are being resettled here. Um, from abroad, and that's a lot of work that takes to get them uh, up to steps, up to scratch with their immunizations. So maybe as well, you know, for where they're having cases such as this, there need to be some sort of plea for additional funding as well. I don't know, um, but we're going to have to think a bit, a bit wider. So all your in all your information and sort of local intelligence is really going to be helpful um, to feed into how we take this forward. That's helpful, Tina, to think that you know we're all trying to all trying to work on the on the same thing at, at the same time mm. and do it together is is brilliant. I mean, the, there seems to be sort of comments coming in thinking it's just people declining. That seems to be the biggest yeah. issue. 
Um, I've just got another technical thing, and I'm not sure whether you can help. Um, have you covered the problem with the coding in EMIS for the preschool boosters? I don't know if any anybody from the Wessex LMC's team is aware of that or knows anything about it. Is Cognizant Dawn, are you nodding there? I think it was EMIS um, had an issue with the six-in-one um, vaccine uh, and TPP, I think it was shingles. Um, and TPP, I think, was sorted. But the EMIS one is, I believe, still outstanding. I think the last mm-hmm. update said that we are still uh, working on the issue. Um, mm. But it was for uh, April to September. I think it was all of the um, all of the claims that uh, EMIS had identified were a problem uplifting to CQRS. Okay. Yeah, um, to say, I know from um, our Chispoint perspective for actually looking at uptake, they've got a manual workaround, um, the hexavalent um, and EMIS practices at the moment because of the snowmed coding. But I'm not sure how that relates to CQRS, but obviously you, you are aware of that, Dawn. Um, uh, so I'm mean, talking, um, when we go back to um, looking at the hexavalent and the booster that's being uh uh, needs to be extracted for CQRS. I just wanted to remind um, everyone that it's only childhood um, diphtheria and tetanus um, pertussis, uh, diphtheria and tetanus containing vaccines and those that might be administered in an adolescent if they've missed them in school that are claimable. It's not every single diphtheria and tetanus um, vaccine that's out there. It's only those for child children and adolescents who've missed at school. Okay, um, thank you. template letter and the BMA advice. Okay, thank you, Tina. We've got some sort of comments and questions coming in thick and fast now, so we've got five minutes to run through. We're finding children registered are taken out are taken out of the country, not deregistered. When we contact parents, we're informed they're out of the country and maybe back at the end of the year. Should we be deducting them? I don't know whether, Lisa, you want to come in on that. Yep, so I, I was just looking to, into the regulations and I can pop the, the link into the chat box. But yes, if somebody leaves the country, they're outside either your practice boundary or the country for three months or more, then you should deregister them. <clears throat> and then obviously Lovely. you can re-register them when they come back. Lovely. Black and white advice be like that. Thank you. Um, coming from Lisa, we're getting quite a few patients wanting to wait until their children are older before vaccinating. This also has an impact, as although they may get their vaccines, they're then outside the time frame for the practice to claim. So do you have any advice on how, what the nurses can say to those particular um, parents, Tina, um, who are saying we, we want to wait? We do have specific advice that can be given to the parents. Um, in those circumstances and it's basic around protecting the children um, so if anybody does come across that situation just email the teams whether it's in uh, the southwest or us and we can give them some written information fantastic they can pass on to the that's really helpful a few comments, which I know you're aware of, but it's it's not a real world. We don't have the resources to achieve the 95%. And so all we're doing is demoralizing the workforce. Um, so I think any, any pushback we can give on that, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't think we have any clout on that, but I'm sure it's something that's been pushed back already. Um, I'm looking for the rest of my team. Is there anything we can say that, that will encourage anybody with that? Some, a lot of practices do actually achieve the targets. And I think that's what we've got to hold on to. These aren't, um, it, inachievable in, in in real terms, um, unachievable in re- real terms. A lot of practices, but actually, it's the amount of support that's needed to reach that that is failing. I think, um, and obviously, the wider issue at the moment where we've got um, a lot of misinformation about out out there regarding vaccines in general, which is not helping the, the situation at this moment in time. No, 
and practices are really, really struggling to be yes, proactive absolutely. with this because they're yeah. absolutely on their knees. Um, Doug's saying we have angry patient parents abusing staff because we repeatedly are trying to encourage them to come in, and obviously we don't want um, we don't want um, anybody to be abused or for um, patients to be given the receptions a hard time. Michelle, did you want to come in? I just wonder if it's useful just to highlight there are two targets, aren't there? So there's a 95% target or a range of targets in the QOF, but there's also another target around um, 80% in the payments that they're due to be paid. And I think that's what um, Tina's case studies were working through. Um, I just wonder if it's worth highlighting, highlighting that because actually there's an implication for two set. There's two different payments now for immunizations. COF is one set, but there's another set that, that links into the additional, um, into the essential services. And I think it's worth just highlighting there are two separate targets with two separate payment mechanisms, which makes it quite, it makes it maybe a little confusing. Thank you, Michelle. I think one comment that's coming from Jenny is saying, practices that achieve a very different demographic to those who are struggling. Um, some, Jenny says, you know, they're in a yeah. fortunate position. So others yeah. aren't. And obviously the target is just across the board, isn't it? It doesn't take into mm. account um, of your of the demographics of the population that you're covering. No. And this is, again, why we need this rich information coming back from the practices themselves about what they need for support. So we can look at it across the system to see what we can, yeah. what can be done and where we need to really maximise efforts um, because not everybody will need the same. No. And do you have any resources within public health that, way, that way you can help practice? So if we have a list of, pa of, of um, parents that need ringing, would public health, would you have any resources to do that on behalf of the practices or something practical we like don't. that? No, I'm that's, afraid that's, I'm, but that's I'm where we have a problem, isn't it? Um, we've got myself and Matt looking at childhood inns for the whole of the Hampshire and Isle of Wight, and I know Southwest the same. But we do have... Um, people we can talk to and discuss and we can negotiate with to actually do some other and maybe um, look at um, additional services that might need to be put in place. Um, but unless really you've got the detail, yep. you can't actually um, sort of, uh, I would say, I'm, I'm going to use the word commission, but I don't want that to be taken literally, but we can't actually look at what is actually needed there and see where we can plug, how we can help plug the gaps. Well, that so is really, at the moment, we can't yeah. do, but we need to see look at it across the board so that is really helpful tina so everybody's heard that if you think you've got a particular issue in your practice there's a group um that are really always declining and you're having problems i think you've got everybody had the contact these are the first slide but obviously share the slides later they'll be on the website um do contact you know give her the information and then you can work together um there's a recognition that everybody is really pushed um but this mm. is important and we all no one's doubting it is um but it's just finding that time to be a little bit more proactive um and if if public health can do that then i think that would make a massive difference um, so we've come up to 1.30. So thank you, Tina. Um, and thank you for your colleagues, to Matthew and Claire. Who was, um, and I know Lisa was trying to get in. Um, I'm sorry there were technical problems there, but I think we've achieved quite a lot in a, in a short suspense of time with um, lots of problems with the um, technical stuff. So thank you, Tina. Um, that was really very, very yeah. helpful. And we're going to move thank on. Thank you. We look forward to hearing from you all. Yeah, we will <laughs> certainly send <laughs> Absolutely. And we will send you um, the information we've had. But I think it's very nice that you ca you've come on and you said we'd like to help. Send us your particular issues. Let's see what we can do. And that is a really positive message. Thank you, Tina. OK, then. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. bye. So we're going to move on to something completely different now. 
Um, so Adam Tuckett. So Adam, I see, has been in the background. There he is. Fantastic. Um, so Adam is going to talk to us about the um, increased access to medical records that we are aware is coming in on the 1st of December for TPP practices. Adam, I'm just stressing on Adam's behalf. He's just sharing some slides of information he knows. This isn't his system and it isn't his decision, um, but he's our information governance guru. And so we asked him to come and share some slides with us. So we were a little bit better informed. Um, and obviously, you can ask some questions of Adam and if he knows, he will share the answer with you. We've also got Lisa and Dawn and Will on the call, so they might be also be able to share. But it's just trying to um, illustrate that there's something changing afoot and we wanted to give you as much information as possible. So welcome, Adam. Nice to see you. Um, I think I've given you permission to share your screen, so hopefully that'll work. Share this image here, um, which is a presentation that was delivered by NHSX colleagues. I don't know who they are, um, but it is a useful summary of, of a lot of the things that are going on. It's 48 pages. You'd be glad to know. I'm not going to go through 48 <laughs> pages now. I don't even know the answer to a lot of the things on there, but it's, it's useful to highlight some of the key things that are, are happening with this development. However, hot off the press, but not confirmed, I have it on good authority um, from a colleague in the IG world. I'm just checking my particular emails um, on this. I'm just checking nothing has literally come in as we're talking. That obviously there's talk about this going live for TPP practices on the 1st of December. Um, but the message that came through to us yesterday, um, this is from a head of information governments elsewhere in the country, waiting for more consultation, sorry, waiting for formal confirmations to take this with a pinch of salt, um, but she got this through a regional digital primary care group at the 1st of December is not happening and there'll be formal confirmation this is being pushed back possibly to April. So that might be the good news, but it might be. And I'm not saying it definitely is happening. The person who sent that me, I would certainly trust and, and say that is, is appropriate. Um, but until we've seen that written in black and white on screen for confirmation, then obviously can't say that is definitely the case. But it would probably be good news if it was, because I think when we look at this, there's a lot for practices potentially to think about and prepare. So just looking at a few of these slides in general, so yeah, I'm probably more than happy to share these slides afterwards as well, given they are one of the webinars NHSX are running about the session. So I'm sure they're, they're happy for them to go around. They do talk a lot about why this is being done, obviously it's useful for people to be able to access their information, know what's going on. Most of us would choose to have it if we have the opportunity, I'm sure. Um, and they talk about the aims of this program being that there are benefits, obviously, for patients to having this online access. Risk of data breach or release of sensitive information could be minimised, but we'll, we'll talk about that later on. Using NHS login and NHS app may improve the, the sort of patient experience. And it says, I'm not going to convincingly believe this, reduction in requests for subject access requests. Um, it could do. But it could also increase them to begin with, depending on how things are taken forward, is, is my view. They're talking at this stage about prospective record access. So at this point, when this is turned on, let's say 1st of December, CPP, but the others to follow, but that they say is subject to confirmation that could be being delayed, that actually this is records going forward and not going backwards. I think that's a crucial point to take on board on the basis that if you think about going backwards, you think, crikey, there's probably a lot of information we might want to check before we provide that to the patient, given a lot of subject access requests. Many, excuse me, many of you all do. You do a lot of work on checking the third parties and confidential data within there. Um, so if this is going forward, you won't have to retrospectively check all those records at that stage. But obviously, it may alter how you record things um, in some respects or how things are recorded in the practice. Um, so there's a little bit in this about the patient journey. Um, while the benefits are there, I'm not going to plan to go through this at this stage and say you have the slides afterwards, read them at your leisure if you want to. Um, so there's quite a bit, as you see, on, on that basis. 
bits about the contractual requirements. Lisa and others might be much better at answering any questions on that than I am. Um, but obviously, these are things they've taken out of this. But this presentation, handily, also has some links in it, by the way. So if you look at this afterwards, it can take you to various different sections that they're, they're highlighting here. Some indications of sort of percentages of patients who are unable to see things, et cetera, and the patients who are doing online booking, online repeat prescriptions, or the totals, et cetera. And it's interesting that they're somehow they've got 40% of patients enabled for at least one service and 57 million transactions in a month. So that shows that people who've got the access already are looking at a lot of things. Um, so clearly it is providing a benefit, hence they wish to, to make this benefit a lot wider. Um, more stats they're showing on usage of monthly trends about the NHS app, et cetera, and, and 2.4 million unique medical record accesses. Clearly, as we've gone into the pandemic and things, these things have increased because people have wanted to interact in that way. Um, I'm going to get to more of the, the interesting bits, certainly from the, the information government's perspective, if you don't mind just me skipping on. So this timeline might be subject to change around here, um, but I say I'm just waiting for that to be confirmed. But the complex and possibly difficult stuff, obviously, going forward, in terms of third-party and sensitive data, you can think about how you record things and what you do. Um, but going backwards, when that potentially comes in, because I think the, the impression is that once they've got this forward view going put in place, they'll then start promoting practices to offer retrospective views to patients. And, and quite a few patients have got that in some cases. I can see my own prescriptions and appointments, et cetera. I can't see my consultations necessarily. But for those of you who are working on things like subject access requests, strange enough, all these things around sensitive information will come to the fore, particularly as we, as we go back, if there's things around Marax or Mappers or domestic violence and abuse and records that obviously we've got to be a bit careful about who we're releasing and how we provide that to. Particularly if in, say, a domestic violence circumstance, an individual who's subject to that is also then forced by an individual who's committing that sort of offence to, to give them access to the healthcare record, which could obviously be quite scary. Interestingly enough, again, in this presentation, there are some links to Royal College of GPs Safe Patient Online Access Guidance. So this, this bit down here, again, is a hyperlink. And they've got quite a lot of useful information if you think about things around domestic violence and abuse and, and some of the other sensitive subjects. So again, useful resources for yourselves if you're concerned about these things as this program goes forward to be able to pick up and look and think, well, what should we do under the guidance of the Royal College? There's an example there of harm from a patient who may get access to the record. Perhaps things a GP has recorded in there, a diagnosis or finding they don't expect, they disagree with, find stigmatizing, et cetera, or maybe didn't even know the GP has put in the record because the GP might be thinking about, here's a possibility of what's wrong with this patient, but I haven't confirmed the diagnosis yet. And that's the sort of information that maybe wouldn't be released to the patient if the patient asked for access to the record in a normal sort of subject access request, because you do have usually up to a month, possibly longer, and, and some time to, to take that sort of information out, as many of you, I'm sure, will know with the subject access requests. Some other examples there about things that when a record transfers from one system to another, it may not carry the redaction settings. And so that might cause a problem at some stages. And so unfortunately, this presentation, when you go through a lot of it, shows a lot of issues and things that you're going to have to think about. But they're obviously not giving you an awful lot of time to think about them um, at that point in time. Third-party data entries as well. I'm sure many of you will know, obviously, if there's confidential data about another person related to that individual, there is a duty of confidentiality about that, and they shouldn't be allowed to see that data. So that's technically not correct without the consent of the third party. Consent is one option you can do to release third-party data. The other option, of course, is redacting the data um, or identifying that maybe it's generally confidential to most people, but actually the person who's receiving it or getting access to it already knows it. Um, so there's a little bit more behind that they haven't necessarily covered at that stage. Um, what else we got in here that's of interest? 
and so most of you will know about the, the issues around redactions and things. Of course, the, the point of this is how do you redact going forward? How do you switch from a retrospective? We've been asked, we look at the record, we've got a month to do it or longer in some cases to take things out to actually saying, as we record this, we have to wake up on the basis of the assumption that when these things are turned on, the patient could see them without any involvement from ourselves as and when they go to access it. Um, there are options they describe in here further on about refusing online access to a patient. So it is possible, therefore, if they feel our risks to the individual, safety to individuals, not just the patient themselves or confidentiality of third-party data that actually you need to go through or think how you're going to manage, you could refuse online access to a patient. Um, but they very much emphasize it shouldn't be about the quality of the record or trying to avoid litigation. It should be where there's clear risk of harm to the individual or other people, perhaps. Um, so there is that option, but obviously it's something you wouldn't want to do very often. Um, and we'll probably take a bit of time to think about and, and decide whether you want to take that forward. And again, maybe possibly give the patient access in the future, give them access to a reduced part of the record or restrict to access to appointment booking, repeat prescription requesting. For example, mine already is. I, all I can do is request appointments and repeat prescription requesting. I don't know why that is. I'm not a, <laughs> not a pain in the backside of my practice, to be honest with you. It's just some limited functionality they probably have at this point in time um, and things haven't been fully turned on. They've also talked briefly about legal and insurance and employment reports. Um, and again, being on the basis of really trying to perhaps educate the patients that the, the online access is not for those purposes. Um, obviously, clearly, if you need to have a medical report for any particular purpose, be it an insurance or another issue, that should still be the same as it always was. Um, and patients shouldn't be giving online access to their records to other people for them to be able to see what, what's in the information. Because obviously, that's, that's literally the actual access to the factual data. It's not about, obviously, the GP's view about whether the person is fit to work or fit to get there or not fit enough to have their insurance pay out if they can't work, etc. And they are highlighting, obviously, this isn't new, but this is a new sort of development of it. It's been around for a number of years, given some of the guidance they're talking about here. Um, and that there is quite a lot of guidance available out there for practices to look at. And probably too much, if I'm honest about it, um, in some respects. I would always think, having looked at a few of the materials, the RCGP stuff is a good place to go because um, they've got a nice sort of easily set out toolkit that you can dip in and out of for what you need to at any point in time. Um, lots of other guidance they talk about in the presentation. And they also talk a bit about redaction and restricting online visibility um, with a nice example of what a, a paper record redacted could look like. And I think actually, if you could zoom in, you could probably read some of that, but that's not a matter. Um, we all know what redaction is for in terms of physical mental harm or third parties, et cetera, but that's obviously applicable to the retrospective access, which isn't yet. But I say going forward, you may also need to think about that for the proactive access, the access going forward, that either recording things slightly differently or blanking things from view as and when they are recorded on the basis the patient shouldn't see it. They define who's a third party, um, which is one thing, but it's also the, the information here is about whether the information is confidential to that third party. So it might just be about the person, but it has to be also confidential at that particular stage. Um, and how to think about these things at the point of entry or, or saving the data. Um, noting, obviously, once patients got online access, then it's a new and different sort of focus of the responsibility. Um, Born in mind that not necessarily every patient will have online access or, or take it up necessarily, but obviously anyone in the future could do so. Um, and obviously develop practice training protocols on, on data quality and information governments for those who contribute to the record. And so the, the key message I'll be thinking about is, You've got to kind of write these things on the basis the person will see them, um, or you've got to use the system and controls, which I don't pretend to be familiar with, to highlight this item is not to be available through the online access. Um, so some obvious advice there, I think, before you save, think about the paying the patient, 
read what you've written as the patient. How would you feel if you read this about you? Always assume the patient will have access to what you write. Um, I have had some GPs in other areas when we've been talking about this being saying, well, actually, this may very so fundamentally change the way we write records because we don't, we've never written them necessarily for the patient. We've written them for the service. We've written for the record of the care delivered and the fitness to practice. And I always struggle with this one because to me, a healthcare record serves money purposes. It's, it's a record of the care delivered to the patient. It's also a record of the effectiveness of the, the clinicians and other carers delivering that care on the basis that if you looked at a GP's access across or action across multiple patients, you can see issues around hopefully being fit enough to practice and everything else as well, but sometimes they're used in, in other sort of purposes. And so it's not really just the patient's own use or own history. And that has a bit of a change into how we, we start to look at these things. Um, the other things on here look pretty obvious about accuracy and honesty, et cetera. Um, avoiding abbreviations, because that sometimes requires you then to explain and therefore you get another call saying, what does this mean in the record, et cetera. Um, and some things about helping patients get through this particular change. Um, highlighting if they do get access, if there's something in your record you've forgotten about and you're upset about it, it's kind of not your guys, you, your fault. It's kind of the patient's unfortunate circumstances. I say access to test results or letters, you might you might hear of something before the practice can actually speak to you about it um, and you can't therefore get support. You can imagine the worst case scenario is the patient sees something in the record online at nine o'clock in the evening, can't contact the practice and spends the rest of the night Googling about it. And um, two days later, is found not to be diagnosed with that condition. It was just something that the GP was considering at the time. Um, and also things about, obviously, yes, whilst you have access to your record, you as a patient are in charge of who you might share that with. Um, how about avoiding coercion? How about making sure you can understand what's in there? So it's it's exciting but scary, I think, at the same time, is the sort of general approach on that basis. But that's a very whistle-stop tour through what they're presenting. Um, the other thing I'm briefly aware of is they do have some other sessions coming up. I was just looking at them before the session. I don't know if you can see this now, but I can send you the link, if you like, in the, the Q&A or the chat where they've got... Two more sessions for GP and operational staff, one on Thursday the 9th of December, um, one for commissioners on the 16th of December, which appear not to be fully booked, so you could register for those as well. Um, I think that's helpful. Thank you, Adam. So that's pretty much all I know about it at the moment, and I'm, I'm probably as excited and as scared about it as the rest of you, but obviously I'm not sitting <laughs> having to deal with the flack that some of you, unfortunately, would, would probably get. But I'm hoping yes. this, this message about things being delayed for April is, is, is confirmed soon. Thank you, Adam. Um, are you all right to stop sharing your screen now? We've got a number of questions that are coming thick and fast. But first of all, I want to go to Dawn, who has heard some updated news on the date. Yes, um, uh, we can confirm what Adam has uh, just mentioned um, about the dates. Um, the GPCIT lead has today sent a message out to say that following um, the GPC's letter to NHSX highlighting all the concerns about the programme launch in December. Um, we have been officially notified today that the programme has been paused until April 2022. We'll now be working with an expert panel and NHSX to look at the entire programme in detail to ensure its safety and workload implications on general practice. Excellent. That is good news. Thank you for confirming that. Thank you for bringing that hot off the press, Adam, and confirming that, Dawn. Um, I shall rattle through the questions now, Adam. Don't go away. I thought we already had to do prospective act give access on request. Um, so retrospective access, prospective access. Can you just clarify, Adam, what, what the access is going to be? Well, all the talk in this programme about the thing they're switching on is is prospective access going forward. So if mine was turned on on the 1st of December, that'd be anything recorded from the 1st of December onwards would be accessible to me through the app, not anything in my record prior to that. Um, there is other talk in the programme, obviously, of 
being able to make that available or retrospective access to patients on request rather than the, the mass turn on, I believe, for every patient for the, the going forward access. Okay, thank you. Um, so, um, Doug said, I asked this at the CCG meeting yesterday. Documents are being saved into the records. Are we going to have to check and redact third-party information in every document? Just saw a slide on GP to GP. Sorry, this may be like a little bit of a camel breaking the straw, breaking the camel's back. I think it feels like too much, Adam. <laughs> Not that it's your fault. <laughs> no, that's part of me would agree. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a balance in all of this, really. I mean, in terms of documents being saved to the records, are we going to have to check and redact third-party info on every document? I mean, the, the key there is being sure you know in the practice what is is third-party confidential data that would need to be redacted. Um, we run obviously for yourselves and others some subject access training, and it's, it's one of the often questions we get asked is, what is third-party data? So if it's information about someone who is not the patient, and is generally information you would consider is confidential, i.e. it's health-related information or sort of very sensitive information, and the person getting access, i.e. in this case the patient, doesn't already know that information, then it is third-party confidential data. Therefore, you are supposed to look and redact, and the phrase, if any of you have been on the subject access trainings, if in doubt, take it out um, on the basis of leaving it in is going to get you in possibly hot water taken out it's going to get you either the right thing to do or told by somebody like the regulator the ICO to say well actually no you can release that and and it's safe to do so not that they ever really get much involved in that side of things mm -hmm. third party data though isn't necessarily a letter from a healthcare professional about the patient from another organization that they've sent to you and you've recorded in your system even though it is from another organization it is not a question of third party being organization it's third party being a person in that respect there's another comment about that. Um, one thing it would be helpful is the responsibility sits with the organisation who produces the document regarding third party information, um, because it should, shouldn't all be down to us. I think that's what the practice are really struggling with is, is the massive weight of responsibility. But I guess the, 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 the sort of slight counter to that, unfortunately, is if the, if the practice need to know that third party confidential data themselves for their own yeah. purposes, um, then the other organisation's got to tell you. Um, yeah. I mean, it, this sort of thing could subtly shift a lot of record management or record development and, and record keeping practices, I think. Mm. Um, Dawn, I think you wanted to come in. <clears throat> yes, I just wanted to mention about redaction software because um, it's kind of all part and parcel of this. Um, and one of the things Adam touched on in, in the slides um, that he showed us is there is a way to actually um, hide um, whole record, whole records, whole entries or whole documents from online view. But that is not, and I've raised this with the GPC and also um, I went on one of these webinars. Um, that's not the same as redacting odd words. So there is quite a difference here. And that's something I'm not sure if they had kind of considered having been on their webinar, but they obviously are thinking about now. There is some free software out there. Some practices um, I know are using, um, but whether that's man enough for the job, um, that also remains to be seen. But um, as a start, at least, that there, there is some free software packages for redaction that m might be worth looking at in, in the beginning before we know more. Thank you, Don. I wonder whether we can, might be able to put those in the um, in the information we send out with the with the website, just so people have got that. Sorry, Adam. Louise, just one one thought on that. I mean, obviously, mm. I'm aware that some of the software packages are out there, but looking at the other questions, it's is this only through the NHS app? I think that is the case. Um, but will that redaction software sit between the app and the clinical system, or is the clinical system the bit, the bit that's linked into the NHS app to to provide the records? I'm not totally familiar with the technology of how these things will interact. <laughs> I think we're getting quite deep into that detail. So I think we'll probably, we will find out more. We will carry on working with you all and with Adam and um, just find out 
to make it as clear as we possibly can but we know this is a very much a moving a moving issue isn't it um i'm just going on now i think you just, just saw the um go on will um i uh, the, so the app is for adults only um i'm pretty sure um I see Dawn holding her face there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, no, what's he going to say? <laughs> um, and um, what was the second question? Sorry, Louise. So, um, if uh, we've already accessed, we've already accessed their request for online access. The clinicians decided it'd be harmful to their mental health. Will it be preserved in the new system? I so if something has be. already been done, it won't no, be. No, it won't, uh, be. It won't okay. be carried over. So everyone will get prospective access unless then at that time it is then acted upon. So it won't be carried over old read coding. Okay. In system one, we can only make the whole consultation or entire document restricted from online view, not just redact a third party. Anybody got comments? Dawn? Yeah, that, that's kind of what I was referring to earlier. They're absolutely yeah. right. You can actually hide the whole thing from online yeah. view. That's not quite the same as um, redacting odd words or sentences. Yeah, but I um, guess the issues you might, might, you might want to be quite, quite granular in redacting the odd sentence here or there rather than necessarily a whole consultation. Um, yeah. But you might be limited to the fact if that's in, they might have to redact the whole consultation if that's the technical facility. But yeah. I guess that's the clarity we need over the coming months is what... Where does redaction happen? How do you do it? And what does it mean? Yeah. And Doug sort of that sort of reinforces that to say we need to provide the tools, the training, the tools and the funding to allow if we should do that. Absolutely. Um, it sounds like there's a little bit of breathing space. One wonders why this, this wasn't all thought through before, doesn't it? But wow. there we are. That's where we are. Um, but we will do our best. So um, Dawn, Lisa um, and I are working with Adam to look at our program for next year to make it absolutely fit for purpose of the changing environment of information governance and data protection. We know it's a minefield and the responsibility does weigh heavily. Um, and just, yeah, Julie is saying, is it another nail in the coffin? I'm not sure I know what to say, Julie. It's just really tough. We're just... Um, we can feel it for you and all we can do is provide the resources but we know it is very very difficult and the weight of responsibility of um, holding the data is hard um oh you're just you're just changing your typo well done julie thank you um okay i'm going to move on from this unless there's anything else you would like to sort of i think the passing thing is good news today it's not going live on the first of december so that is good news we've got more time to think um and uh, we will do our very best with adam's um, fantastic help to um just to make it as easy as we possibly can for you with some practical tips. Um, and we're just, um, yeah, it's just one more thing to do, isn't it? So I'm sorry about that. But thank you, Adam. Thank you for your time. It's been fantastic to have you with us. Thank you. Um, oh, actually, before you go, Adam, I don't know whether you've gone. Have you gone? No, no. Just one, I just look at, because uh, this is my confusion with chat and Q&A. So there's another one on the Q&A. I've heard that staff tasks will be accessible by patients as part of their record. Is this true? I'm not sure whether that's a bit, whether it's a bit of the technical system of the clinical system, you understand, Adam. But will Lisa, um, Dawn, any ideas on that? Are the tasks going to form part of the medical record that people can access? Yes, Will. We, we don't know yet. That's okay. one that they haven't actually pinned down. But I okay. think that um, the policy we will consider is that everything we put in, including tasks, will be accessible to patients. That's okay. the ideology until we know more. Okay, thank you, Will. So, Ruth, um, watch this space and we will as soon as we know have an absolute categorical um, information on that we will let you know so um 
Thank you, Adam. And um, that's great. I said, so we've got some, we know there's going to be some more um, getting ready for patients to have access to their future data webinars. I think the, the 9th of December, you mentioned, didn't you, Adam? Um, that's coming up. I think, Dawn, you're going to go on that one. So we'll put, um, we'll, we'll give you the link for that if any of yeah, you want I'll, to go on that. I'll and we will just chat to that. Perfect. Thank you, Adam. That's brilliant. Thanks again for your help, Adam. Great to no see problem. you. Thank you. And we will see you again very soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Um, Will, I'm going to come to you next. I think you're going to you're going to come on and just share a few a few minute thoughts on the um, what's happening with the review um, for general practice, if that's all right. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, Louise. So this was just um, something that we think is quite important for for our practices, for GPs, for practice managers. Um, as you may well have heard in the news, that there is going to be an inquiry into general practice run by a parliamentary health select committee. And um, the chair of the Health Select Committee is going to be the Right Honourable Jeremy Hunt MP, and that he is uh, um, going to run a Health Select Committee in order to try and work out the future of general practice on behalf of um, all of us as patients and all of us as workers in the NHS. He's based it upon the statement that general practice is in crisis now with an utterly exhausted and demoralised workforce and patients increasingly uncertain of what they can expect. Yet it remains the beating heart of the NHS and essential to the prevention agenda. So how do we improve things? This will be one of the most important inquiries of the coming year. And uh, the Health Select Committee has requested um, evidence from stakeholders and that they have written a deadline for evidence to be submitted of the 14th of December 2021 which doesn't give us long to give the select committee our, um, our opinions. Now, the more voices that are heard giving evidence, then the better the inquiry is going to be. And what we really want to encourage all of our practices, all of our GPs, both as individuals and as groups of practices, is to provide evidence to the select committee. Um, and there are a number of areas where they want you to provide evidence. Um, and shortly, the LMC will be sending out more information. It'll be linked into the newsletter, and we'll send a specific special email next week with regard to what there is, uh, what we need to be telling the select committee. It is an individual thing. So if you have specific things you want to say, then you need to give that evidence. And the LMC will also be getting um, information from the committees that um, we represent so that we can give um, an LMC-wide opinion on what is needed for the review. But the more voices that speak, the richer the conversation will be. So we'd really like all members member practices, all GPs as individuals to actually provide evidence. And if I uh, paste into the chat the link to be able to submit that evidence, um, then you'll be able to see exactly what it is that is required. Really, this is almost a, a call to arms. This is our opportunity as uh, general practices, people who have a vested interest in making the future of general practice successful to, um, to really provide that evidence and, and make a difference to the future. So I'll post the link into the chat and um, have a look at it. It's got a good amount of information and we'll be providing more information shortly as well. That's brilliant. Thank you. Well, that's really important and really helpful to summarise that for us. So, yes, we will be um, putting together a, sh a sh very short um, set of slides that you might want to use as a foundation to have perhaps a practice meeting and just get the discussion going. Um, but as Will says, the, the more um, information you can give and the more input we can give into, the more we can sort of own it and poss possibly and just kind of direct the, the, um, the results. So that's really helpful. Thank you for that, Will. So we're running out of time. This has been a busy one today, hasn't it? So I think Dawn we were just going to go through a couple of bits there um mandatory vaccination for healthcare workers um 
tell, tell me what you're going to tell about. Yes, uh, <clears throat> quite a hot topic at the moment. Um, the mandatory vaccination that's going to come in and include all the NHS health workers from um, next April, as we know, we're getting lots of questions about that. Um, we don't actually have any more information as such than has already been put out there. However, there is, um, and we will post this, there's a link to the Peninsula Group who have got um, a good article that you might find useful. But um, one thing in particular at the moment we want to emphasise, this information about mandatory vaccination relates to the first and second doses, not the booster doses. That's not mentioned at all at the moment. So it is looking at staff having first and second, not boosters. So we just suggest in the meanwhile, before before we have any further information, start looking at your staff and what, what vaccines they may need, what they have or haven't had. Um, and in actual fact, if they haven't, whether they do intend to sign up and have it before or on the 4th of February, which is the kind of last date that you could fit in a full course of the first and second dose before the start of April next year. Lovely. Thank you, Dawn. And I think you were just going to add um, a very eagle-eyed practice yes. has been quite helpful, haven't they, with some flu coding. So we just wanted to highlight this to you. Yes, we do. Um, very eagle-eyed and we're very grateful to them. We've raised it with public health and it has gone up the line. So this particular practice noticed they had literally hundreds of uh, childhood flu vaccinations flowing directly, automatically into their EMIS system. And they've been coded as... First, uh, first flu vaccination given and it's, so it looks like the practice has given them which means with the automatic CQRS extractions the practice would then be paid for them but the practice haven't done them. Um, on checking it was children's vaccinations um, so they guess it's obviously um, whoever is providing the schools programme, probably a training issue. Um, but anyway, they obviously needed to be coded or do need to be coded differently. At the moment, they are just automatically flowing in, though. Um, we're raising it because we want you to perhaps have a look. So there are no surprises because it is possible, if this isn't corrected, that some practices may be overpaid. Um, in the meanwhile, um, we have been told by public health that the data and tech team wait for this, we're aware that this was an issue, but um, the potential impact for, for practices hadn't actually been appreciated. Well, they do appreciate it now is all I can say. Um, uh, so so um, unfortunately, we haven't got the uh, answer to that one, but we do just want to make you aware. Good. It's heads up is always what we try and do, isn't it, on, on these sort of information webinars for you. And Lisa, finally, I think you've got a reminder for um, the practice managers. Yes, very, very briefly, because we're two minutes past two, the deadline for the workforce data submission is 30th of November. So just a reminder. Yeah. So thank you, everybody. Really, really sort of thank you for your input. Thank you for attending. Thank you for your questions. And um, we've got lots of information. Thank you very much to um, Dawn and Lisa and Will and Michelle, who was here briefly, but she had another meeting to go to. So we will see you again in a couple of weeks time. Um, and um, don't forget, we're here. We're here to support you. And any questions you've got, just wing them into us and we will help you as much as we possibly can. Take care. Have a good week. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice.